Hi, I'm Jeffrey Reddick, creator of the Final Destination film series, and it's my pleasure to be here today to moderate the DVD commentary for Arrow Video's release of The Funhouse. And I'm here with Craig Reardon, a special effects makeup genius who's won several Emmys and has been in the film industry for over 33 years. Um, and Craig, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you, Jeff. So, how did you get involved in this project, Craig? Well, I want to say uh, from the very get-go that uh, this was a project that came to Rick Baker. It didn't come to me. Uh, I had not established uh, myself as an you know, independent entity uh, at this time. This was in 1980, and early in 1980. And uh, I was friendly with Rick, and I'd worked with him on a couple of other movies. And uh, so this thing came along. He called me up and told me uh, roughly what it was about and to come on over where I learned a little more about it from him. And I remember uh, going with him to a uh, nice building somewhere, I believe, in Beverly Hills. Beautiful offices, like, you know, posh, really like a lawyer's office. And I met, uh, rather, you know, Rick met, and I also met uh, Mace Newfeld and uh, Derek Power, whose names are come up in the credits here. Mm -hmm. And uh, interesting contrast, Mace was a really smooth guy, uh, looked like a typical kind of connected guy. I mean, he had, he, he had the kind of, you know, smooth and, uh, you know, uh, maple syrup voice and, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, Mr. Cool. And Derek was a little more uh, enthusiastic, very dapper guy, uh, British accent. And uh, so, you know, these are just personal impressions. They have nothing to do with anything <laughs> of any substance. But, uh, you know, I, I uh, eavesdropped and listened, uh, standing right there after all, to, uh, you know, some of their preliminary ideas, what they wanted, uh, you know, with the creature, which fi figures obviously uh, heavily in the latter part of this, which is what Rick was being, you know, hired to do. And so, uh, you know, I, it was necessary that I uh, pay attention to that because I was going to be involved in it also. And uh, Rick's basic uh, desire in including me was from the outset to uh, have me kind of do a, tr a handoff because he was already involved in pre-planning for what became American Werewolf in London. And Simultaneously, a movie called Night Skies, which was Steven Spielberg's Aliens from Space. Uh, that's aliens, plural. Uh, it was a completely different script by John Sayles, as I recall. And it was these mischievous, somewhat threatening creatures that uh, uh, begin to manifest themselves in, in, a, in, a, in a farmhouse out in the country. Completely different than what E.T. became. But uh, Rick, uh, I can't remember exactly this when, but I don't think he had done it yet, but uh, I do remember that in 1980 at some point he produced a very uh, good uh, sculpture of, the, of, a, of a, at least one of these aliens. I can't recall if it was going to be reproduced so that they all looked alike or that this was going to be the main one or what the hell, but uh, he had done that or was going to do that, again, in my... Uh, and my chronology is a little out of whack at this point. But, uh, and of course the werewolf was something that he had, uh, I mean when I first met him, 
1969, and this, remember, was 1980, so when he was like 18 years old, something like that, 18, 19, I was 16, 17. That's, you know, where there's about a two-year two gap. I'm a little younger than he is. Uh, but he had, he, you know, I remember I had first visited him and I was very enthused meeting him. He was obviously a talented guy, well, you know, unbelievably uh, industrious, going places. Even though nobody knew who he was, and he lived in, you know, as I did with his parents, and he, you know, his his be little bedroom was like a makeup lab, and and simultaneously a display room. It's amazing. And he showed me some eight millimeter movies I remembered, and uh, it had some simple but impressive for a kid, you know, tricks with uh, back uh, with the back wine to lap dissolves. And I said, how did you do that? He says, all oh, this, you know, my dad has a camera where you can, you know, roll back the film and get a a dissolve, and I said, geez, you know, I'm impressed, you know, <laughs> we didn't have one of those. So at one point I called, I called, not call, but wrote him, wrote him letters. This was back in a day uh, where I would write letters constantly, and these are, of course, paper letters you write with a pen or, or, or type, <laughs> yeah, stuff in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and, and he sent me one back in response to, you know, me enthusing about, let's, hey, hey, let's do a wolfman, let's do a werewolf, let's use that camera, you know, what do you think, you know, let's do a lap dissolve. And he wrote back, this is interesting, this is 1969. He says, you know, he says, I know, he said, I, I think that the day of that's been done and it's been seen over and over again. He says, and I've got an idea for a werewolf that, where the guy would really go through hell, like, a person would would really do if he was going to turn into a werewolf. I mean, this guy, you know, he would he would have his bone structure changing, and he'd have muscles and sinew tearing and bruising, and and I thought, Jesus, <laughs> you know, good lord, you know, <laughs> that where did he get that idea? Well, it's exactly That's what amazing, yeah. yeah, it's exactly what turned up, and so obviously he and John Landis, you know, really spoke the same language when it came to uh, the conception of that movie. Now, of course, John had his own ideas, too. John, John is very, uh, you know, he's got some very, very, uh, uh, I'm looking for the right Particular. adjective. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to sum up John. He's a, he's a nut. Uh, and I say that with affection, but I mean, he's, he's got a very strong personality. So I'm sure that, you know, it was a fun session for them to conceive that movie. So that was, I go on about that rather than Funhouse at the outset here because that was, that was in the hopper. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, well also that, that film was coming around now. Finally John had gotten other films that had put him on the map, you know, Animal House, Blues Brothers, and now he was going to do American Werewolf. You know, basically the film we talked about all the years, years he, and, he and Rick. And so that was going to go simultaneously. Steven Spielberg, no less, you know, has this thing Rick's got. He's still living in a very nice, but a home. He's still working out of a garage. But uh, and that is where, incidentally, uh, we would meet and and uh, and prepare the funhouse. He had a nice room in the back of his house that was a kind of an artist's studio, and we used that. And we also used his. Uh, detached garage, a separate, you know, garage where we go out and do certain pre preparation. Um, and then, and because of the unique nature of this, the fact that Rick uh, neither could nor quite frankly wanted to, you know, be distracted by having to follow through on it, it was 
also understood that at some point I would pick it up, take it to my house. By this time I was living in the neighborhood, uh, a few blocks from him actually, and uh, and take it from there. Uh, not not you know, not too far out of whatever uh, uh, concept he'd already established, but. Uh, I remember the earliest parts of it. The one thing that uh, Rick had covered from discussion from the script was the uh, scene in the film, which is a ways away. As in, we're we're out of sync with what's going on with the movie right now. But I but I uh, presume the people that listen to this will have seen the movie. Absolutely. So uh, there is a scene where there is a uh, disturbing-looking baby, a dead baby, a dead embryo not embryo, a fetus, mm -hmm. in a uh, jar in, uh, in this funhouse situation in a kind of a sideshow tent. And uh, both in the movie and in the script, the intention is to leave you a little bit non, uh, nonplussed, a little bit uh, off, off base, wondering what, what's that, you know, what is that? And you have already seen, uh, I can't recall this being the script, but certainly it's in the film, you've actually seen a real cow with a, the beginnings of another head. Right. And so this element of, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of a natural but uh, nevertheless aberrant disaster of nature has been established by this glimpse of this cow and uh, also the thing in the bottle. So uh, Rick had that underway. He had uh, he had knowledge of a, a company, I still can remember, I think it was called South Carolina Biological Supply, and they supplied uh, certain things to uh, high schools, colleges for display models. There might be a plastic model of a brain, for example, or some other body, organ, human organs, or whatever. And, and anyway, among the things that they had to offer uh, were uh, replicas of, of, of fetus, fetuses. And uh, he, he picked one, he had already had it delivered, and I recall that it was a very stiff, sort of heavy-duty vinyl, kind of like, like a little girl's baby doll, only even a little more solid. And uh, just a cute little, you know, kind of a little Caucasian baby in a kind of a, you know, fetal position. And uh, so one of the first things I was assigned to do was to take that cute little baby and saw one of his arms off <laughs> and most of his face and uh, go to work on him and to come up with something uh, pretty god-awful looking. And Rick was already launching on the, uh, on the sculptures. Now, this, this fails to mention that we had also been, you know, connected with Wayne Doba. And so a little bit on Wayne, I think, is... Uh, I should probably interrupt my own little uh, my talk here to, to talk about Wayne. He was a delightful guy. He was uh, a mime and a street performer, I believe originally from the San Francisco area. Uh, years later, I ran into him again on a movie that had Whoopi Goldberg, and I remember he was enthused to see Whoopi because he said he used to see her on the street. She was a street performer at the beginning of her working life. Wayne was really a charming guy, quirky, <clears throat> But all in a good way. I mean, he was one of these delightful souls who uh, <clears throat> doesn't seem, at least on the surface, to be living in fear of anything. And I'm I'm including the rent, money, you know, <laughs> eating, anything. I mean, he, he seemed to be, you know, uh, 
you know, like he was full of helium. And uh, he had a funny personality. He lifted the mood uh, with the people, you know, that we eventually all worked among when we got back to Florida where this was made. And I, I liked him so much. It was just great. I'm not saying that he was uh, easygoing uh, if it was to his own detriment, not at all. In fact, later on, I remember he uh, really put his foot down about something regarding the makeup, but uh, I can mention that later. But anyway, we had we'd met Wayne, he'd been flown, uh, what are we talking, down to L.A. And uh, as a matter of fact, he came to my house and we made the life mask uh, uh, at my sort of ad hoc lab set up in my garage. and. Uh, and Rick's not helping much because he's 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 got his typical patter going. He was funny, and he says, uh, he says, are you a mime? And he said, yeah, I'm a mime. He says, well, I don't believe you're a mime. And he says, what do you mean? And he says, well, he says, he says, you got to prove to me that you're a mime. He says, do trapped in a in a glass <laughs> box. <laughs> and of course, I knew exactly what he meant. He, he Rick and I had grown up in the era where. Uh, a frequent guest uh, on the Ed Sullivan show, an old variety show, was Marcel Marceau of France. And one of his most famous bits was uh, to use the flat of his palms as if he was contacting, you know, a glass box. And everywhere he turned, he'd contact this. And, you know, it was a, actually a kind of a uh, uh, harrowing, you know, skit that Marceau would do. So Rick says, do, do trapped in a glass box, as if that was the name of the bit. And Wayne's cracking up, and I'm trying. I said, "Rick, cool it, you know." I, <laughs> I got you know, easy man. Now I will also say that in order to accommodate the design that Rick contemplated doing, he knew that he needed to uh, that there were going to be uh, there was going to be a very uh, kind of heavy-duty denture in the lower jaw, and so at this stage, since the denture had not yet been made, uh, we simulated it with the folded dental wax. We just got, oh, got probably at least an eighth of an inch, maybe a little more of, of in dimension of, of wax on either side of his lower teeth and slipped that in his mouth. It would have looked to the eye like the things that boxers put in their mouth to protect their teeth. And the function of that was simply to thrust his lower lip forward and to create the configuration in his face that he would probably have once the actual denture was put in and th this was also important so that whatever was sculpted over the, the, the casting, the, the plaster cast of his face, you know, would be compatible with the way he would look once the denture was in. I hope that isn't over explained. So uh, these are the things you have to anticipate sometimes. You have to, at best at least, have some idea where you're going to go, what, what, what the hell you're going to make this given actor into. And Rick had pretty well decided by that time. And uh, I remember that uh, there had been vague you know, discussion. It should be deformed. It should be appalling. It should be, I, I also remember, I want to say, that the producers had both. Uh, not insisted, but given us a very uh, strong uh, impression, both of us, that they would hardly show this character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> seen the movie, uh, that sure went to hell in a handbasket. But uh, Rick, you know, as, and this is the problem. I mean, makeup artists uh, are in, politically uh, obliged, even at a high level sometimes, to go with whatever they're told. And uh, 
you know, operate in good faith that what they were, what they have been told is going to be followed. And uh, so this influenced Rick, and one way it influenced him was that he thought, well, okay, great, we don't have, it's not going to be shown very much, so let's just go with a basically an overhead mask approach. And uh, because, I mean, why not? I mean, it, it won't have to be that animated. Uh, it won't, people won't notice that it can't make certain expressions because it won't, they won't be seeing it very much. It's going to be in shadow, like we were told. <laughs> and, uh, and furthermore, uh, it should be a little over the top because since it won't be shown, uh -huh, uh, it should really make a, you know, a, 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 an immediately, oh my God, what is that? You know, people that are going to see it, they're not going to see it very well, we thought. And so he thought, let's go for it. Let's go to the wall. So uh, at that time, also, the 80s, the early 80s, uh, many people later on did a lot of this, but Rick was perhaps a, a little ahead of the curve. He had uh, a medical textbook. I know that Dick Smith, who was a mentor to both of us, to Rick and me, that's how I met Rick, would do the same thing, occasionally look to anomalies of nature that were real. They, they did have, and probably still do have, medical texts recording uh, people who just didn't come out of the womb quite right. And uh, Rick uh, found a photograph in a, in a particular text, happened to have been in black and white, of, an, of a young man. And I uh, can tell you that, to the best of my recollection, this young man's face looked almost, almost like the character that he wound up, that when I say he, Rick, wound up sculpting over Wayne at least for one. Now, I, you might say, what do you mean for one? Well, you know, it's often expected you give an option to a producer or director, and this was no different. They, Rick thought that just for, uh, he was both being requested and expected to, and he thought, well, I'll, I'll give them two. But he says to me, but they're gonna pick this one. And I thought, what? <laughs> he said, he said, you watch, he said, and he says, this is the one they're going to pick. And I'd seen him do that before because we had worked on uh, a movie that wound up having the title The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and he'd done a gorilla, and he had to do two heads for that, and he'd said the same thing. He'd said, I got this one over here and this one. And he says, but this is the one that Landis will pick. And I said, how do you know? And he said, well, he Is said, there a big difference in there was, yeah, there was a, quite a difference, and uh, they were both completely naturalistic. And uh, but he, Rick, never lacked for confidence, and uh, I think <coughs> he had a sixth sense that something would have a, a greater impact and a faith that it would. But quite frankly, and uh, at this point, I'm, if we sync this talk up, there's the baby in the jar himself. But anyway, uh, he had a sense that if, if it didn't go over automatically, that he would, you know, nudge it with comments. And I'm a, I'm a son of a gun if he didn't pull it off. Quick question on this baby, because this sure. baby looks similar to the adult. Absolutely, face. and not by accident. Although there are, there are differences because, of course, you were... Uh, you know, you're trying to. I'm looking at it right now. You're 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 trying to evoke grotesquery uh, in various ways. The main way in which, of course, it evokes the adult is with the uh, the fact that the facial bones haven't closed properly. You know, and the uh, that gap there 
uh, right through the nose and up into the cranium. Uh, the eyes are different, obviously, and there's no hair, obviously. So, I mean, uh, there's a limit uh, to what I could do with a, with a, with a fetus to uh, evoke that uh, character. But that's deliberate. I'm not absolutely certain if it was, because I, and I also can't remember if it was uh, intentional in the script. To, like, link them as... Yeah, but certainly we, we, we thought we would. And I think once they received the thing, you know, once we shipped it to them before I actually went back there, I think they saw the potential for that, too. At least it's an unspoken, hmm, you know. Plus, it lingers in the mind. It's sufficiently ugly and disturbing looking that it, it's not going to be forgotten. So I think the audience, certainly, when they see, you know, Wayne finally revealed, there's got to be some correspondence. They're like, oh, my God, that reminds me of... And I think, finally, they did make some reference to your brother. That's what, yeah. Doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think Kevin Conway. So, um... <clears throat> Pilot. <laughs> uh, so uh, where were we? Okay, so we uh, Rick. By this time, I had pretty much completed in pretty pretty quick uh, time the uh, baby. And this was now back at Rick's shop or his uh, studio, and Rick had been working on both the heads. I wish I could recall what the other one looked like. I can't. I really can't. I just remember that it was also deformed and distorted and uh, not that dissimilar from the one that he wanted to sell. And by God, uh, Toby Hooper came over. We met Toby. And, uh, well, I shouldn't say I met him. I had met Toby before. I had worked, uh, or had, met, had been intended to work on a movie called Eatin' Eatin Alive. Alive. Yeah. And uh, there was such a forceful, cocky guy who almost got <coughs> fired, the makeup artist, that he uh, got his job back. And so I was there just sort of, uh, you know, twiddling thumbs for uh, two weeks on that. But I did get to observe Toby. I didn't really have much interaction with him. I would say on uh, Funhouse was the first time I really got to deal with him and liked him very much. He's a very sweet person. So he comes over with, uh, I forget who else, maybe Derek Power, uh, maybe Mace Newfield, I don't remember. But they came by at Rick's and, uh, and it was the time for the big unveiling and to look at the clay sculpture. And uh, I'll never forget what Toby said in conclusion, he looked like this one's, oh, yeah, he tends to kind of talk to himself where you can't really understand what he's saying. He likes to smoke cigars so often he's playing with a cigar. And he finally made the, uh, the uh, summation. He said, well, this one, he says, over here is all fucked up. <laughs> but Cowman is terrifying. Okay. <laughs> and so he had dubbed uh, the one that Rick had wanted him to uh, pick, Cowman. And uh, so, Cowman it was, and just as Rick had predicted. Now, after that point, Jeffrey, it was uh, basically almost time to hand off the football to me. And so, with you know, since the monster that uh, Rick had wanted to be, who had received uh, Toby's blessing, uh, I took the clay sculpture, you know, having been sculpted over Wayne's actual head underneath it. And I took it back to my place, and I made the mold off it. And uh, I commenced to, uh, I can't remember if these heads were made at Rick's. They may have been. I think he had a better oven set up then than I did. I mean, these are all the, you know, we were both kind of beginners, you know, in our careers. Rick had more, uh, a good deal more uh, uh, paraphernalia and uh, uh, kind of support structure than I did at that point in my life. But whatever I could do at home, I, I would do because it was easier for me to concentrate uh, on my own. Although I liked working with Rick, 
But uh, so I, I made the mold, and then we began to, uh, uh, you know, the mold gets opened, the clay gets removed, and then cleaned, and then it, then you use that mold to fabricate the actual foam latex masks. And they were tricky to mold, I recall. There would frequently be uh, uh, what we often call holidays, which are places where the foam, the liquid foam doesn't completely fill. And so this was a nuisance, but there are ways around that where you can inject more into the place that did not fill and fill it in. And uh, fortunately, they, they tended to happen up in the cranium where there was going to be a wig. Uh, I can say at this junction that Rick, uh, I remember he said, I feel a little guilty that this is adapted so, f uh, so closely from an actual human being. And he's being presented as a monster. He said, I think I want to uh, monster him up a little bit. So he had done a, uh, a charcoal sketch, a really quick one. I thought it was great, but he didn't like it very much. I have it somewhere, but uh, couldn't lay my hands on it right before I, 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 I came to do this talk. But uh, he had very broad, big, fangy-type teeth for it, which I felt like, gods, I mean, you know, what are people to make of that, you know? But he didn't care. He just, uh, let's just go for it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's he's, he's god awful, like a, like a lion, and uh, fine with him. So I said, okay, fine with me then, you know, and uh, and that's what he wanted. Now he had a very interesting concept because technical concept, because the character has the very very bad uh, what they used to call hair lip situation with split lip, only in this case continuing up through the nose and everything. Uh, you, how do you solve that? In other words, how do you show the gums and the teeth and all that uh, and still have the actor able to, you know, emote and a little bit? And Rick's idea was that we would make a dental appliance that would be glued to Wayne's own upper lip and obscure it and cover it, and the mask would sort of tuck around the edges of that and uh, hide the join. And so that's what was done. Uh, I sculpted. I, you know, I did the sculpture for the teeth, and uh, one of the, one portion of the sculpture was done in a conventional manner, except for its bulk and its thrust forwardness. Uh, it was conventionally modeled over the teeth themselves, his lower teeth. But the upper one, most unconventionally, <laughs> was modeled over the plaster cast of his upper lip, and. Uh, they were, they were, uh, you know, I don't remember how the hell we got them to synchronize. They synchronized beautifully, but I can't remember how we figured it out or how I figured it out. If it was me, I pat myself on the back, but somehow I did. So that the lower teeth meshed, you know, when he closed his jaws with the ones that were in essence just sitting on his lip. So that's how those were done, and uh, they were both made out of a material that was quite common, uh, commonly used in uh, makeup labs at that time, which was uh, a cold cure, meaning you don't have to heat it, uh, dental acrylic, a two-part, there's a liquid and a powder. And the, then the gums are a pink color, and then the teeth, uh, you get a, a large variety of colors available, and we picked one that was kind of discolored yellow. And uh, then the eyes had to be dealt with, and uh, Rick had a notion how to do those and showed me what he wanted, and uh, those were done with a kind of a plastic vacuum form machine. And uh, the irises, that's the colored portion of anyone's eye, uh, often mistakenly called the pupil by people. Pupil is the hole, of course. 
but the irises were done simply uh, with colored pencils on a, uh, on a small piece of card and then cut out and laid into a sort of resin material inside the shell, the clear shell for each eye. And there was also additionally embedded uh, a light called a grain of wheat bulb, which is actually an incandescent bulb. It isn't like we have today LED light or anything of that kind. It's an actual tiny, tiny incandescent that was often used in model railroads. They actually get quite hot. You can't leave them on. It would have been uncomfortable for the actor, but Rick had the idea that it might add a little eerie something, an actual light in the eyes. I don't recall if in the film that ever made much impression, even though films had become quite, motion picture film stock had become quite sensitive, which is to say uh, able to pick up very low light. I don't remember if that actually ever recorded, but it was nevertheless activated every time uh, Wayne went to work. I would have to uh, connect the two wires to a D-cell battery somewhere in his costume and light up his, his eyes. So uh, whether it was all for naught, I, I really don't remember. And then, uh, where are we? Uh, well, of course, we have eyebrows and eyelashes. I, I uh, uh, glued those on using, uh, you know, white hair. And uh, having painted it, you know, with uh, rubber cement paint was quite uh, commonly used back then. It was literally rubber cement with uh, 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 tinting colors that were available at certain professional paint stores. And you just mix the colors you needed. Um, the way the uh, mask was designed, uh, Wayne Doba's own chin would, em would emerge out of the uh, area around the mouth and uh, be made up, but everything else was covered with the mask and it would be secured around the edges. He didn't have to be entirely glued inside this mask, luckily for him, uh, because just just putting it over his head and closing it in the back was sufficient to keep it enough in contact that there was enough uh, animation conveyed. Uh, so where are we? Oh, and then of course there was a wig. Now, uh, apart from the monster aspect, uh, it was um, Rick's. I, it was his notion that uh, he said, "And let's make him an albino." <laughs> so okay. So the uh, wig was designed in a with an erratic kind of hairline and uh, white also. And the eyes were were reddish or pinkish, like an albino rabbit. You might, you know, make that analogy. And uh, so that pretty much handled the head, and then the, the hands had to be dealt with. And we wanted something grotesque. I initially sculpted the hands with a lot of uh, oh, kind of twisted and corded detail and. Uh, the sense that the joints were larger than normal, but they were they were human hands. And Rick came over and got a, got a look at him. He came over with his wife at the time, Elaine, his first wife. And he's looking at it and he says, "I think they ought to be more monstery again, monsters." And I I tried to argue against it. I I was a little dubious about this thing being such a. I felt it was it looked a little bit like it had been hauled in from another movie. At this point, what with the fangs and the. And now he wanted claws and he wanted, you know, he said, let's get a lot of veins on it. So uh, it was his, it was still his project. So I was obliged to do what he wanted to do and I did. So I redid them and uh, it, it was a little bit of a, uh, uh, a little depressing because there had been a lot of superficial, uh, nice wrinkles and things, a lot of fine detail I'd already gone ahead and done. And you cannot uh, retain that when you have to lay over veins. So, so I had tough, tough. Tough toenails, so it had to be done. 
And uh, those hands were simply done as heavy rubber gloves. Again, we had it ever in our minds. It won't be seen this much. Uh, they don't have to be made of a softer or more pliable material like foam rubber, and the heavy rubber will be more durable. And so accordingly, that's how they were done, and then I painted them. And uh, so I was pretty much done with the preparations at that point. Uh, everything else was going to be done on the wing in Florida. I wasn't certain at that point whether uh, the makeup artist on the film would do things such as wounds or, uh, you know, uh, anything to do with the victims of the uh, Funhouse monster. But uh, I came prepared to do it in case that wasn't going to be the case. And when I got here, I got there to the uh, film company, I found out that she had her hands full. It was a lovely lady named Marlene Winter, I believe was her last name. And Marlene, uh, you know, had the rest of the cast and this and that, and she asked if I wouldn't handle that. So I did, you know, whenever someone had been torn limb from limb or whatever. That was improvised. Just any accidents around the funhouse. A lot of accidents <laughs> around the funhouse, indeed, yeah. And when I got there, they had already done a, a pretty good slug of the movie. And uh, it, was, it was a great job. I mean, they put me up in a hotel. I should give some background as to logistics and how it was uh, how it was laid out there it was, it was rather unique it was a real carnival right yeah two but and two things Jeff they had um, they had uh, leased or rented out uh, studio space at what was called Ivan Tours studio Ivan Tours was uh, uh, as far as I know a, a producer who had done the flipper movie the movie flipper and then this and then the flipper TV series which younger people today would wonder, what, what, what's, uh-huh. But I mean, at one time, that was a very well-known, successful franchise. Basically a friendly, it's like doing Lassie with a dolphin. You know, Flipper talked and told you just like Lassie used to bark, and somehow they would know what that meant and go, you know, address the problem that Flipper identified. And uh, he'd done other shows, too. He'd had a success with a show in the 1950s that I grew up seeing on television, because I was born in 1953, called Sea Hunt with uh, Lloyd Bridges, who was the father of Jeff Bridges and Bo Bridges. And that was good too. And that, I presume, was made in Florida. And so, you know, he was a successful producer who had created this unique kind of approach to producing programs that had to, primarily had to do with the, the ocean at first. And then he diversified and did some other stuff, something called Gentle Bend about a pet bear. Stuff for kids, mostly. But So anyway, this was his studio, and it was right in Miami. I mean, it was in... It was in walking distance of a big shopping center, a rather nice shopping center. It was right across the street, literally, from the uh, uh, hotel room, or the hotel, rather, where they put me up. And uh, I had a really sweet arrangement. Basically, if I was close enough to a telephone, this was pre-cell phones, 1980, but if I was close enough to a phone, I could hear the phone, uh, I could be over there, you know, in a half an hour. So, I mean, I was really on my own to watch television or, you know sit on my ass in my hotel room and uh, read whatever I wanted to do as long as I was able and ready to get up and go over there I literally walked over there when they when they said okay we need you and I remember that there were a couple of days where I had you know nothing to do and that was fine with me I mean sometimes they would in fact have the courtesy to call me and say Greg it doesn't look like we're going to use you today we're not going to use the monsters so you're off well great and I mean they're still paying me so it's fine and uh then, of course, 
inevitably the the the, uh, the calls began coming, and we had to get really get into monster uh, sequences. And uh, yeah, I I do remember that the first day that Wayne worked, uh, they sort of used him at their convenience. If they needed to uh, have uh, you know the creature do this or have the creature do that, fine. But then they would just park him in a director's chair or something, and and he didn't like that. And I don't blame him. I don't think that uh, it was malicious, but I mean, it's it's not unusual at all for people who are not in elaborate makeups to completely take for granted what the performer is going through, what that experience is like. And to tell you the truth, because I've done it, I've been in them years ago for Halloween and a couple of things, in fact, that Rick and others that worked for him, you know, I mean, where we were all competing to come up with the most elaborate things. And elaborate means miserable to wear. I mean, you're, you're covered in paint and glue and rubber and God knows. So Wayne, uh, I had to admire him. Uh, he, he spoke right up. He said, hey, come over here, you know, to an AD. Yeah? What is it? Guy comes over and he laid into him. He said, if you think I'm going to sit here in this thing, I can't quote him, but I mean, it was just, he says, you got another thing coming. He says, he says I, I want you to plan this. He says, I don't want you just to assume that you can hang me on a rack and just take me down and use me and then put me back on the rack. And, you know, you have to laugh because the reaction was kind of like, uh, wow, you know. I mean, not only do people not, not reckon on it, but they, they really don't care. So, I mean, good for him. I mean, he, he, he woke him up. He, 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 he read the Mariah Act and he got results. So, subsequent to that, they were, they, they, you know, they had been burned, and so they were uh, a little more, uh, you know, a little more considerate of Wayne's uh, particular situation. And so, when he was put in something, they worked him constantly. And as he said to me, he said, "If I'm working, and I've heard this repeated many, many times by actors, if I'm working, I forget everything. I, I, I don't mind any of this. It's great. It's just sitting here in this junk, you know, when I'm not doing anything. That's all I can think about." And of course, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, so uh, you know, obviously the days escalated, and we got into the scenes with Kevin Conway, who was great, you know, and uh, and uh, also the girls. Uh, perhaps, would you like me to talk about the cast a little bit? Yeah, from absolutely. what what I can say, have absolutely. Recall, I mean, I didn't have a lot of contact with Kevin, but uh, it was fun to watch him because he's a terrific actor. I can say something from later in my life. I was working on a Star Trek series at Paramount, and I recognized uh, a Klingon coming down the street. It wasn't just any Klingon; it was Kevin Conway, and uh, I hailed him, and he looked, he didn't know who I was, and so I I explained who I was because, as I say, we didn't interact very much on the Funhouse, and so it was, oh, oh, hi, well, how are you? You know, basically, like just meeting me. And he says, you know, it's funny. And here he is talking to me seriously with a Klingon head and the beard and the teeth and all that, you know, regalia of Klingons. But he says, he says, after all the things I've done on stage and movies, he says, that's the one I get asked about all the time. And it's so often the case. It's it's the lurid and the uh, you know the fascinating oddball thing that you that you that you do, particularly when you're an actor. You know, I've had a whole career full of this stuff, right. but I think for Kevin it was probably a rare an unusual bit. And of course, I think he reveled in the fact they gave him like three people to be, too. Yeah. Was it, you, you know what the reasoning behind that was? Is he supposed to be 
the same guy just dressing up differently or is are they supposed to be like inbred brothers or something <laughs> I don't, you know I really think since you you only really see uh, the one particular guy behind the scenes that it was uh, God knows what is what I really want to say but I mean if it was anything it was probably him dressing up but I also think that Toby has enough of a squirrely uh, you know sense of humor yeah uh, that he probably thought, let's let him figure it out. You know, I, I think they wanted to give this entire arrangement an aura of uh, the off kilter. You know, not just that this was a extraordinarily ugly baby that grew up and became homicidal and uh, you know threatening, but maybe that's not all that's wrong with this place. I mean, I've, you know, look at the casting. They got Bill Finley. You know who had a brief but fascinating career playing real oddballs for Brian De Palma and you know, did his bit as the magician in this. And I was there when Bill was still working, but just for one night. I think it was when I first arrived. Uh, and, uh, well, let's let's talk about the cast a little bit. I mean... Uh, you met Sylvia Miles. I, I did meet Sylvia Miles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How was that? Well, I mean, I, again, not, not any particular personal uh, interaction because I had nothing to do with her personally, but, uh, oh, she's She's incredible. Yeah. Sylvia Miles says anything that's on her mind, uh, just like John Landis. <laughs> and uh, she was a pistol. And, uh, you know, I mean, she had done a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, the thing that I had seen her in was Midnight Cowboy when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, she's a, she's a damn good actress. I mean, sort of Shelley Winters-like in that kind of strident, in-your-face kind of style. So yeah, I was there for that because, of course, as you know, the uh, the creature interacts with her. Yes, he's has a very romantic relationship. A very with her. romantic, tender, <laughs> tender, tender, yeah, intimate relationship. And uh, then the girls, uh, Elizabeth was very sweet. Uh, although I have to tell you that the one that I particularly hit her off with was Largo Woodruff, who was the blonde girl, mm. and uh, I uh, I liked her a lot, and I uh, actually. You know, like had dinner with her a couple of times, and uh, unfortunately, she was engaged to be married. Oh, and I really so liked her. The plot thickens. <laughs> yeah, and so I thought, oh, great. You know, I often make reference and exasperate my family by referring to Murphy's Law, which is, of course, uh, whatever can go wrong will go, go wrong. wrong. And I call Murphy my patron saint, and uh, obviously, he's been around a long time because uh, you know, I mean, I really like Largo, and I think she liked me too. But you know, it's life, so. So she did get married, uh, but very, uh, I mean, take me out of the equation, very sweet girl, very nice, yeah, yeah, terrific. I think that Largo, uh, the only other thing I remember from her resume that, that I actually saw was a very, very good TV movie called Bill, about a retarded man okay. played by Mickey Rooney, and a young Dennis Quaid. Yeah, of course, I saw that. Did you see it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I thought she was good in that, and I thought she was good in this, and she just sort of vanished, so I don't know where she is. I, I Maybe she'll hear this. Bye. Hello, Largo. I wish I wish you would hear this. But uh, And then Elizabeth, I, I, I met uh, years later uh, on the movie Hidalgo, and she played Annie Oakley. And uh, she was actually sitting in the old makeup chair, and I said, you know, we've met before. And she said, where? She absolutely had no idea. And I said... Are you ready? She says, yeah, what was it? I said, it was called, and I'm really dragging this out, I said, The Fun House. And she goes, oh my God, you know, kind of half abashed, 
because uh, you know, I mean, she had done uh, what Amadeus, Amadeus yeah, yeah, was her big, you know, and uh, you know, she laughed, and she said, "Well," she said, "Well, uh, nice to see you again," and so. Uh, she, uh, you know, she had, she had looked like a, I mean, you know, apart from her grown, grown figure, which is on ample display in this film, she has a face of a, like a, a 10-year-old, very youthful looking at that point in her life. And uh, Cooper Huckabee, very nice guy. I, I've later, I, I later found out that he grew up with uh, Bill, uh, uh, help, Bill... I want to. Where's Google? He was, he was in weird. He was in weird science, and uh, which I were I worked on with him. Uh, Bill, uh, this is ridiculous, but I, I I'm uh, given to brain omissions now and then. But it'll come. It'll to pop me. up. Yeah, and uh, another guy from Texas, and I believe that Cooper uh, dropped out of acting and became a uh, a preacher or something like that, a reverend. Yeah. Well, I mean, he had the character for it. He really, really had the soul of a. Uh, you know, a, 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 a lovely, lovely guy. Uh, Miles Chapin was interesting too. He, his dad had been uh, in New York, um, the music industry, but classical music, as I recall, and, and sort of like Lincoln Center and really, you know, uh, kind of high tone things. I, I used to re be able to remember his name, but I can only, can only remember Miles' name, Miles Chapin. And so it wasn't a huge cast, but it was a very congenial, very nice group. I went out with them one evening, and we, you know, we sort of cruised around Florida. And uh, it was very near, you know, the, the coast there, where you can see across to the bridge to Key Biscayne. And uh, ironically, I would return to Florida on a couple other jobs in later years, but that was the first time I'd ever been there. It's a remarkable place for anybody who'd never been to Florida, including any of our listeners, uh, where this is scheduled to be released in the United Kingdom. Uh, humid. <laughs> you can have a raging rainstorm, and uh, it, it's like somebody turned the water on and just shuts it right off. You can see three feet of water in the street disappear and then dry up and have a hot day by the end of the day. So Florida is kind of one of a kind. An interesting yeah. thing I think about this movie is they have their teenagers. You have your four teenagers, but he also populates a lot of older characters as well. Yes. Uh, do you know if this was intentional, though, about having the four you know, teens going to the funhouse, sexing it up? Oh, I'm sure. I, yeah. Oh, yeah, Jeff. I think that, uh, I think that uh, for all the, whatever novelty is in this movie that makes it, uh, you know, the little cult favorite that it's sort of become in some respects, that it was otherwise a very boilerplate, you know, film. I mean, this is hardly a, uh, you know, surprising format, and it's been successful jillions of times, particularly for low-budget films. Yo, absolutely. And uh, I, I think that uh, putting... Uh, like you, you put it perfectly. You know, you know, two dates and they, you know, get into some petting sessions or whatever. That's that's obviously for a target audience. You know, the same type kids. Uh, and I did see it in a public theater, and I can't remember, you know, the constitution of the audience. But obviously, that was there, you know, because that's an insurance policy. Right. And uh, and it's an old formula. Roger Corman uh, used it with success. Many many other people, you know, American and International, the studio Corman kind of help put on the map, uh, live by it. Right. So, so sure, yeah, that's that's definitely a, a stock item. I, I think you could you could say. But I think that their casting was good. Uh, sometimes you do see films with that same format, and you see a bunch of loxes that really don't come off the screen. I think these kids, oh, there's Sylvia getting it, and uh, I, 
uh, there's something about the sparking. It, it, often when they have these sparking machines, uh, they're they're surefire, but uh, somebody can actually get a I shock. I say it looks really dangerous. They can <laughs> they look be, very yeah. close to the sparks. It it depends upon uh, you know the timing of the technician doing it. But of course, whenever Wayne gets into anything that is uh, particularly physical, you see the value of having hired a mime. Right. You see someone who is uh, conscious of his body. It's not that far uh, removed from a dancer. Uh, and uh, I later worked with a, a wonderful guy named Larry Cedar on a couple of movies, Twilight Zone the movie and Dreamscape. And uh, to get a guy like that in a suit is much different than having a stunt person or a regular actor because you know you could you could bury them under the ground and they know I mean that's a bad example but I mean <laughs> but you know you you could really swab them and things and they know where they are and they know what their body looks like I mean it's it's sort of a sixth sense I think that develops from the the discipline of learning to dance and move so uh, it, you know it's striking the right tone so that it doesn't look too you know a theatrical too posy and I think I think Wayne did a damn good job what about the Frankenstein mask? Yeah, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know about that. That was already there, and uh, the one thing I can tell you is that uh, what you would all obviously assume too is that in all the many scenes where he's just wearing that mask, he's certainly not wearing also the uh, appliance that right. Rick and I had prepared. Because I mean, come on! But except for one notable exception, when he takes it off. And uh, I don't know why that, but I think they probably felt that by that time, point in time, was certainly a very stock, you know, novelty store, joke joke store type Halloween thing that uh, really wouldn't that, that wouldn't that wouldn't be seen as anything out of the ordinary. And I think they were trying to play to that a lot. I don't I don't think that there wasn't a metaphor like he's a monster created by his. Evil dad. Well, I mean, they love it. I'm sure. I'm sure. The guys that produce these pictures with <laughs> absolutely no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, with 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 nothing above or below, uh, would love you to supply whatever context or subtext you could create, because it makes them look better. But I, I I do think, in all candor, that it was just a generic kind of thing that they thought wouldn't cause anybody to wonder anything. I do think probably that they. Did hope and expect that when the guy took the mask off, that the average person in the audience would have no idea that he would look that bad. Yeah. And uh, you know, it would be interesting if they had followed through on what they had said they would do and hardly show him. Would it have made it more better? I, 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 I how can I know? You know, how can any of us? Uh, I agree with Rick, whose reaction when he finally saw it was that they'd overexposed the thing and that you were debatably able to see that it didn't have the facial animation that it might otherwise have had if that had been intended. But I don't really think, you know, I mean, I love those films made at Universal in the, in the well, 50s. I remember when I saw it when the mask came off, you know, I was, a, I think I was actually underage, I probably shouldn't have been watching this, but my mom <laughs> let me, but I remember when the mask came off, we were all like, oh. <laughs> it got so a rise out of did, you. It really did. Yeah, I mean, frequently, uh, it gets lost, uh, even on parents, that uh, a lot of horror movies, if they're not really horribly grueling, and they've gotten that way in recent years, uh, but uh, kids love them. They love to be, you know, just, just horrified. I mean, 
I can remember, I mean, I remember the first one I ever saw, the America, not the America Werewolf, the original <laughs> Werewolf of London, uh -huh. which I saw in like 1959 on some late show. Man, I mean, I had to practically cover myself up with everything on my bed, you know, I was watching it in my room before I could, uh, you know, stick it out. Now, of course, it's completely, it's like a Grimm's fairy tale, if that. Uh, what got you, what got you interested in movie makeup and did you always want to do horror is that was that kind of like a yeah oh yes I think so absolutely I mean because that is the story that uh, that fits Rick Baker like a, like a glove doesn't mean that there weren't lots of other little boys out there that had a parallel experience to him rather like a lot of people that are in visual effects today uh, oh Ray Harryhausen and George Powell and even Walt Disney, uh, a great debt. Uh, certainly, yeah, absolutely, Jeffrey. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up seeing, uh, uh, and in particular, the Universal films. Again, you know, the fact that it's a tired story is simply uh, derives from the fact that, uh, you know, Rick became such a such a huge celebrity, and he's told it, and uh, others have told it. You know, I mean, a lot of people who have succeeded in this particular area of makeup. <clears throat> Quite, quite naturally, have that had that influence, and uh, I, I remember again. Here we go, you know, seeing famous monsters of Filmland, which was the pioneering magazine, and due to uh, uh, dear Forey Ackerman's, uh, you know, again he, he I've used this phrase already, so now I'm wearing it out. But he had his own sixth sense, uh, and I think it was simple. I think he just put in the magazine what he liked. And uh, that's always the key. You hear that from so many artists. I don't care what they do, write songs, you know, paint pictures, act or whatever. I believe them too. I believe that often when, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, if you go with what you like, somebody, somebody is going to like it because you're not that unique. You know, I mean, if you like it, is it reasonable to expect, you know, that someone in this wide world might say, wow, I like that too? No, sure, sure it is. So, uh, you know, both Forey and, and crafting, and he really did in the early days, uh, it was a labor of love to make famous monsters. And of course, he had the insight to share with his readers uh, existing behind-the-scenes photographs that probably had originally been made to promote interest in the movies, you know, through contemporary magazines and newspapers. And uh, I got, I mean, the first time I saw somebody, maybe it was Glenn Strange, halfway through uh, being made into Frankenstein, I didn't know what I was looking at. I couldn't tell what they'd done to him. And obviously, you know, he was a reconstructed human being, but what was that stuff? It looked like uh, clay or something on him. It was probably Jack Pierce making him up for uh, House of Dracula, where he's found, the monster is found in a bunch of mud. So it you know, when the makeup was being done, it looked like mud, and, you know, it didn't answer any questions. It basically put a bunch of questions in your head. But I was uh, kind of spellbound by that, uh, however old I was, uh, whether I was in my teens yet even, I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it, it was a form of, uh, uh, you know, it, the funny thing is that uh, transformation of someone uh, hits us on a lot of odd levels. We're visually obviously uh, fascinated, but there are, I think there are depths that are sounded that we can't even put together as children. Uh, 
I mean, I, I truly believe it touches on uh, sexual areas, it touches on, uh, you know, uh, just things that we can't even, we can't, we, we have the, probably the, the, the beginnings of feelings about those as children. Uh, and the point I'm making is not to try to be a uh, pop psychologist here or an amateur psychologist, but simply to say that I think it's profound in ways and it can be as transforming to the person as that person is transforming in the movie. I mean, I had a similar reaction uh, seeing Walt Disney's, uh, uh, what do I want to say, uh, Snow White, when the queen, the beautiful queen, takes this draft and turns into the witch and, you know, she's grabbing her throat and her hair is turning white. I, I didn't know, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't know whether I was coming or going as a kid seeing that. I thought it was frightening but exciting too. And I still don't know what it is, this, this weird mixture. So I think in makeup, you, you, I, I felt a certain you know, uh, kinship with those sorts of scenes, Jekyll and Hyde and, you know, and of course what I just described, the witch, the queen becoming the witch. And uh, you know, uh, Dick, who was the person I ultimately fastened on as probably the most amazing makeup artist of his generation, uh, and he became, you know, he, he, he excelled himself to such an extent that, you know, by the time I was already uh, corresponding with him, he began to do the movies that he became most famous for. And I already knew him at that time, which was marvelous, you know. He's, he's writing me letters from the set of, uh, you know, uh, The Godfather awesome. and uh, The Exorcist and uh, later on Taxi Driver. And these were, uh, uh, you know, these were groundbreaking, technically and artistically. This, this verisimilitude that he was able to achieve was unprecedented until he came along. Here we go. Yeah, I know your money shot's coming up. <laughs> yeah. I was there, of course, when they filmed this, and I love the way that Kevin, there, said, ugly man. I will say that I think the editing uh, helps uh, keep the exposure of the beast you know, to yeah. enough of a minimum that the degree of light that's on him, uh, uh oh, that dumb kid. Uh, of course, the poor viewer, you know, well, let, let, again, we're going to assume that they've seen the movie, so we're certainly yes. not stepping on anybody's mood here. Uh, you know, the whole environment was interesting, too. They, uh, they did not have particularly huge sound stages. But they used them in interesting ways, and I thought that the sets were great because I completely believe that's the interior, that crappy-looking funhouse. Yeah, no, the, I think the production design and everything is amazing. In yeah, the movie. yeah, and I mean on a, on on very little money, and uh, you know the environment's terrific, and of course in any good horror picture, that was a good shot. They got enough shadow on him there. In any good horror film, uh, in, including especially the Universal classics, uh, the creature. It's really, if he's a good creature, like the kind Jack Pierce miraculously made up out of the simplest materials with, with great actors like, uh, you know, Karloff and Lon Chaney Jr., etc. Uh, yeah, that, you might liken that to the gem, and it needs a setting, and they had those. They had beautiful, wonderful sets. Uh, incredibly, one of the great art directors uh, who, who basically was the line art director, as opposed to the credited supervisor of the department, uh, Robert Boyle, uh, who did the Wolfman is still alive. He's almost a hundred years old. I mean, I'm not kidding. I think he he's like in his 90s. And uh, 
uh, you know, I mean, that, that foggy forest with a few, uh, he explained, he said, we didn't have the money, we went on the back lot, we got some old dead trees, and, you know, put them on like a Christmas tree stand, put them in different configurations on the set, painted them with, uh, I believe he said they sprayed them with mineral oil to give them a kind of a, a damp, you know, uh, look, and then just put in the, the fog, which was probably some god-awful stuff. Some of those early smokes that we used for fogs were toxic as hell. But, uh, but that's beside the point, what do you see, you know? And uh, I think to some extent the same thing pertains here. They simulate the idea, like here, where the kids are behind uh, lit uh, kind of scenics that you assume that on the other side of those is what the person going through the ride sees. If you allow logic to enter the picture too much, you would begin to realize that it's far too big for the, for the uh, dimensions of the funhouse you see in life. But that could have been a what the hell thing too, where they just felt, well, that, who cares? You know, we're going to, we're going to dispense with worrying about that once we get them inside here, and let them worry about it. Let the, uh, you know, the audience worry about how big or how small and all this. But what does pay off is that particular room, which has that claustrophobic, grimy, cruddy look with the chicken wire cages for storing stuff. I, I thought it was great, and. Uh, of course, you've also got a kind of a ventilation system that I think the uh, the creature winds up doing Largo in uh, inside and uh, and uh, well, you know, and then of course the the, the works at the end where uh, you know Elizabeth comes to grips with him, and uh, the decorations were interesting too because I do believe that they were not for the most part, if if at all, even built for this. They were they were leased from uh, actual like carnival type people that had these things. I remember a particularly ridiculous looking gorilla and I came in one day and somebody stuck a sign on it and said this uh, is the offspring, uh, this is a grape, the offspring of a grip and an ape. <laughs> <laughs> a grip, for those who don't know, probably most do, or is, a, is a, actually a very responsible and skillful job which is to, uh, you know, usually move the camera dolly, and which is a sensitive and, and you know, difficult task. And, yeah, and get all kinds of uh, heavy equipment in place and, and come up with rigs so that cameras can be set up in places where cameras shouldn't even be able to be set up. So I don't want to make fun of grips, but, I mean, that was funny. I mean, What was the atmosphere on the set like? Was it, I mean, was it fun? Were people I thought it was fun. Oh, yeah. I, I found it to be one of the very much more relaxed shoots that I've worked on. I didn't feel ever that it was, you know, hurry up and we've got to wrap this thing. <laughs> you know. Did you have the producers there a lot or was Toby kind of running the show and so that's... I felt that on that one Toby was permitted to run the show, uh, but yes, the producers were there. Uh, in fact, I saw a name go by that uh, now I remember he was there too. Stephen Bernhardt, I believe was his name. Nice guy. And uh, now I must say, I don't now that we now that we bring that uh, you that you raised that subject, Jeffrey. I don't think that Mace or uh, or Derek came back for very long. Uh, I think I think perhaps Stephen was more the line producer who was there, you know, more than anyone else. Then again, I'm you know trying to dredge up stuff from 30 years ago, so I can't. What I basically retain are images, right. sort of like I think a lot of us have memories that are like disconnected home movies in our heads, and we, you try to <laughs> infer from what images you you have rattling around up there. Uh, but yeah, I think it was I think it wasn't uh, I, I think it was efficiently shot, and I think that I don't remember them going over or getting on uh, Toby's case about anything. 
Uh, oh, there he is. <laughs> you know, I think too at this distance, it's part of what makes these films uh, so much fun to watch is how preposterous they are, how over the top they are. I think sometimes today uh, things are, uh, yeah, they don't go for broke, you know, they, they're, they're careful. They want to make certain that, it's, that everything is oh so credible and it's oh so grim. And sure, they're scary. They're dreadful sometimes, but they're they lack that. I mean, there's a there's an element of a horror comic about this movie. I mean, a kind of an all bright colors, giddy, and, yeah, yeah, a crazy, giddy, fun, scary, sure, and 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 definitely uh, depressing. I mean, a lot of people bite the dust in this, but it has a it has a fun kind of garish quality. It has a kind of a line through from Corman's pictures, I think, in that respect. That's what I think of. That's what the great thing about horror is: is you know you want to be scared, but it's it's fun. It's not morbid. You're not yes. relishing people being hacked to pieces. Yes, um, something that sometimes our parents had to take on faith. You know, those of us who were fortunate, <laughs> you know, yeah. fortunate enough to to allow us to look at certain horror movies and not think we were going to wind up, uh, you know, being in a in a padded room someday. Here, of course, we've got a guy who the 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 guy with the stabbing knife is an actor in a suit, but. Uh, but others, other of these things are actual mechanized uh, devices that were rented, that were used in actual dark rides. And of course, as you can plainly see, there was an actual track laid and uh, the little car, car actually does go around the... Uh... Paxton, Bill Paxton. Good Lord. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't think of it while I was driving home. But uh, <laughs> yes, in other words, words, Cooper sounds. Huckabee's boyhood friend was Bill Paxton. They grew up in Texas. Was he? He was in Weird Science, right? Yeah. And right. you designed Sloth. Uh, well, yeah. Well, well, Sloth. You're, you're combining two that I worked on at the same time. Okay. Yeah. The Goonies had Sloth. Goonies was Sloth. But yeah, but I mean, we'll so, edit that to make me not sound stupid. Um, <laughs> I think it's a natural mistake. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, in Weird Science. I did that big toad. The thing. big toad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that creature's name? Uh, it didn't really have a name in the script. It was called a, the Blob or a Blob. John Hughes said, he he said, you know, I have a little stage direction here that says Job of the Hut, but we don't, you know, we don't necessarily want to do Job of the Hut. He says, but he said, he says I got to put something in there that people that run studios can can visualize. You know, anything you say that you know isn't something they already know scares them. Well, those are both too iconic. Well, you I know, mean, creatures in like horror comedies too, which was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's part of it's contextual, uh, but I, I take the compliment. Thank you very much. But uh, I always want to credit, you know, uh, the mix of people that everything that reflects on something. You know, uh, various people, people that I extravagantly admire. Uh, well, I uh, one of my heroes growing up because it was a, such a film fan was the great uh, film composer Bernard Herrmann. And he had a uh, he he had a conviction that music, which was his specialty, obviously, uh, and any other element that goes into a movie, it actually harkens back. And this is not getting highfalutin about this, to uh, Richard Wagner, the German opera composer, who felt that once uh, music, drama, acting, setting, scenic, uh, in other words, art, were combined in an eloquent piece of work, they all became that thing. It's a funny thing, it's almost a mystical uh, interpretation. 
But just to simplify, take one element, the main element in an opera, and when Herman was involved, that became a main element too. The music, I, I think Herman once said, music is film and film is music, in meaning if it's good. And I, but but I, I have a point to make, and I believe the same is true of everything. I think that the costumes become the film, and the film becomes the costumes and the makeup and all that. And I, and I, it's not so much I resent it. I, I don't resent it. I understand it, but I don't care for a stratification or a kind of hierarchies when films are discussed. The only, the only one I think, you know, is absolutely indispensable are the script, the screenwriters, the the people that come up with the idea in the first place. I think even the director, the best director, unless he's written the script or or helped write the script is an adjunct to the to the notion that the that the actual creator which is the writer you know started with that's where we go that's the well we go to well we as, as a screenwriter i'll say amen to that and let it go but that's um <laughs> <laughs> well i know that's at your background and <laughs> it's, it's not it's not unintentional but i want to right. pay tribute to all writers uh there's no such thing as a lousy screenwriter to me because uh, if the movie has gone into production Ipso facto, he's a good screenwriter, or she is. You know, I mean, if they're really lousy, and there are such things, they don't get made. Now, of course, a lot of good things also don't get made, sadly. But I mean, uh, perhaps too little. To <laughs> perhaps it's so obvious that you know, it's like uh, you know, the guy that's looking for the pencil that's right behind his ear. You know, uh, I've always felt that writers have been given short shrift. But at any rate. Uh, it's also fair to say that once the film comes together, that the writer's original inspiration does become subsumed in whatever it is that it winds up being. Whether it's better than what he hoped for, well, just for convenience, say he, uh, or whether it disappointed him bitterly. But I mean, we've all been disappointed too. We're all affected by that interaction. I've had uh, some of my efforts uh, lifted up. I've had a lot of them squashed, you know, flat by other people, and I don't always want to say who, you know. Uh, but uh, that's, that's you know, you, you pays your money, it takes your choices, uh, chances there. Yeah, just a question on that, because I know a lot of people that are listening to this are going to be interested in, in makeup and, and the effects, and I'm just wondering how, how do you as an artist, how have you managed, because you seem, and I was going to actually say this before you, you know, gave props to screenwriters, so I really was, but you seem very gracious and humble, like you you're very quick to give credit to other people involved in, in your work, and you seem like a very mellow, happy guy. You know, well, I, uh, it depends. It depends on what day you catch me, or, or who <laughs> the company is. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, 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 you know, I have a reputation among some people in my craft as being a, uh, a, a psycho, but uh, I would say an impulse. I, 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 I want to be those things that you said. Uh, that is that is what I want to be. I want to appreciate uh, and do appreciate uh, where I feel anybody has made uh, a notable and uh, impressive uh, contribution. Uh, I think instinctively, as a, even as a boy, I, I began to be analytical about the movies I enjoyed, even before I knew what the word meant. In other words, I was taking them apart. Now, obviously, a child has a limited scope of experience and uh, understanding of what of what's what. But you know, there were dawning there was a dawning appreciation for the fact that if I liked a universal horror film, uh, I, I 
I have nothing to support this, but I, in, 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 in looking way back, I, I, I do feel that I appreciated the lighting, the music, the, the face, the eloquent, you might almost say the beauty of certain faces. I, well, I'm not the first one to talk about the beauty of Boris Karloff's face. Uh, obviously, you're not talking about a beauty like, uh, you know, uh, Angelina Jolie. Uh, you, you know, I mean, it, there's beauty and there's beauty. There's the beauty of an old redwood tree. Well, he had a beautiful construction and, a, and an eloquence to his expressions uh, that, that definitely emerged from whatever makeup that Jack Pierce put on him, which everybody from Rick to certainly me, only nobody listens to me versus Rick Baker, but I mean, we all have remarked upon the fact that Pierce, you know, whether deliberately or accidentally, he had the, he, you know, the makeups uh, are, are a kind of collaboration in character with, with, with Boris Karloff. They don't. They don't. In other words, uh, muffle him. They don't. Uh, they don't uh, negate him. Rather, they bring him out. Actually, in different aspects of him. That's the ideal. Uh, as a matter of fact, I actually uh, sometimes have had second thoughts and even regrets about uh, certain things I myself have done, or I've seen others do too, which perhaps were overly ambitious to begin with, but wound up doing exactly that. Kind of putting a pillowcase over, uh, you know. Uh, a wonderful actor is not uh, a hell of a you know contribution. So uh, you know if you're going to do that, you're going to hopefully put something there to replace what you've taken from him. You know, I mean, I mean that seriously. I mean that. I was just trying to think of what actor you put a pillowcase over their head. Well, I mean, I meant that figuratively. Oh, but I, th I didn't know if you were talking about. Friday Thirteenth. <laughs> like, oh no, no, Jeffrey, no. no but I meant, no, I meant, you know, I mean, if you have a, if you have a, a really heavy, heavy, uh, bulky, you know, uh, kind of costume or makeup, and there have been many, many of them in the past twenty five, thirty years. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that, ideally, uh, hopefully, you're going to, you're going to. Uh, you know, do that in a responsible manner. You're going to add something to the drama and to the audience's interest instead of just putting a bunch of shit on somebody that is sort of, hey, look at me. Now, I've seen some beautiful things that are, I think, wrong because they're too, they sort of stop the movie, though that's debatable. You know, a lot of people love the same things as some of the ones that I feel, oh, boy, it's over the top. But I've also seen ones that are just devoid of any personality. They're too derivative. They're too, I call them gray. It just, it's like they all blur out. There's just nothing. Uh, it, it's a peculiar uh, aesthetic when you're talking about things like monsters, which are really the province of uh, make-believe and children. But I take them seriously. I just don't want to be pretentious about it. But I take them seriously to the extent I think that there are broad details that are more important than, than little details. The little detail is great as long as the broad character is strong. I mean, what Rick came up with in those days was marvelous. He, he usually had a wonderful sense of structure and the, the basic statement, if you will, of, of what this thing is, whatever it was. And I feel that I did too in some of my better work. Now, if you, however, start a thing and you're already going in with the fine, you know, you know, the little picks and doing the little microscopic wrinkles and pores, but your character is banal, you've missed, you, you missed the train, man. You're, you know, you're, here's, here's the little This scene actually traumatized the hell out of me as a kid, and 
it still bothers me. Yeah. It's just so well shot, and she's so good, and it's just, She's marvelous. It's just, it's... Well, I, you know, it's I have horrible. to tell a little story about her, too, and why I uh, initially hit it off with her. She uh, she did this cold. She just got in this set, because this was a set, and uh, she got in there and did this scene cold. Now, you may say, okay, so... Well, Elizabeth, who I think is a very good actress, too, but she was method. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and Elizabeth had to go off and, you know, shudder and, you know, and prep and work herself up emotionally and, you know, they, they were courteous, they let her do it, and she found her, you know, she took the time, she requested, she was fine, you know, but at that time, I have to admit, I was more judgmental and younger, and, you know, I looked at her going over there doing her preparing, and I took, you know, I thought, oh, brother, you know. I found it, I thought it was rather pretentious, but you know, it's all a point of view. I mean, there are, there are people that worship the, uh, particularly the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s method people, which yielded a, a credible crop of, you know, personalities. But I myself have a particular affection for stories I hear about people like Barbara Stanwyck, who could be telling a funny story and go in and convincingly have a you know temper tantrum or, or cry and then come back and say anyway you know and Largo was a little like that and I saw her uh, the first time where I could really talk to her I was in the uh, hotel having a breakfast actually and she walked by the window and I uh, you know she recognized me and she came and sat down and I said you know I want to tell you I, I saw you the contrast between the way you work and the way Elizabeth works and uh, you know, I don't want to go into great uh, detail because I, I have affection for Elizabeth and I don't want to make her, if she ever happens to hear this, I don't want her to say, well, that son of a bitch, because I don't, <laughs> I don't have any disrespect for her work in this film or anything about her. But it's just, it was just, you know, as an amateur, I'm not an actor, you know, and so I said, I, I'm impressed. You know, I think, you know, what you did yesterday and what she had done that the day before that I was referring to was her death scene there. I said, I, I was, I thought that you were, Fantastic! I thought you really looked terrified, and uh, bravo! You know, of course, any actor likes to hear that. So, and often, you know, actors like any of us. You know, whether we whether we work whatever aspect we work in film, there are going to be projects where you're the uh, little lord, and there are going to be some where you're the uh, you know, you, you know, you may as well be there to uh, deliver the pizza. Right. So. Are there any? Can't I mean, predict. This this might be a cheesy question, but are, are, is there a particular project that you're most proud of, and the one that you maybe had the best experience? Like maybe you got to work with somebody you really had always wanted to work with, or create something that. Well, I, I tell you, um, I've uh, been grateful, and this has not been this is not a mush answer, but I've I've been grateful for a great number of the projects I've worked on, but. Uh, Peculiarly, the ones that I have the greatest affection for are not necessarily the best known, nor are they the most prestigious, you know. Uh, again, you know, it's difficult to come up with a, a, a reply that really addresses uh, questions that are perfectly, you know, valid and also quite common question. You know, which is your favorite movie? Which is your favorite actor, collaborator, etc., etc.? Ones that come to mind for me, uh, I worked on a movie by, on a television, made-for-television film biography of the man that wrote The uh, Wizard of Oz, and I loved working on that. Uh, it, it was actually finally released to DVD as an additional uh, thing on the Wizard of Oz Blu-ray, but the transfer was 
terrible. I don't know what happened. It was almost looked like some critic online said it looks like a 3D movie that they forgot to give you the glasses <laughs> to. And I thought it, I agreed with him. I thought, what happened? Anyway, and that's a shame because it was, uh, I thought, very well done. Don Ritter uh, helped produce it and played uh, Baum, L. Frank Baum. And that was a pet project. I had a wonderful time on that. But, I mean, uh, let's move from that. Uh, the Gate, I thought, was one of the things I enjoyed the most because Randy, uh, his professional name, Randall William Cook, is, uh, is one of the smartest, uh, most knowledgeable, versatile, interesting, funny, bright, great guys I've ever met in the business. Uh, it's just extraordinary. And uh, he labored for many years in a little bit of a shadow. You know, I mean, he worked on films and took what he could get like we all do and tried to build momentum. Oh, Kevin just got it. That's got to hurt, you know. <laughs> anyway, Randy, uh, you know, did beautiful work, but he was, uh, you know, trying uh, to ascend, as we all do, to make it more challenging. And he, uh, I actually recommended him myself uh, on uh, two earlier films. Uh, in Twilight Zone, the movie, there was going to be a shot of the necessary, of the gremlin uh, from the remake of uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet that I'd been hired to do flying off the wing into the, into the sky and I said uh, I'd met Randy first uh, in 1978 or so so this was in 1982 I guess we worked in the yeah when it was made it came out in 83 and I said you you you, you ought to get Randy Cook to, for that and they didn't know who he was and I said well I'm telling you he, he's the man I, that I would recommend and they called him and some didn't I don't they didn't even they didn't even they didn't even call, hire him. Um, Dave Allen wound up being hired. Perfectly good, you know, but I mean, I think Randy would have been the guy. And then I was initially offered, uh, there's a lot of movies that I was offered that are celebrated that for one reason or another didn't happen. One of them was Ghostbusters. And before it was anything other than just in discussion, I came in and I talked to, uh, met Ivan Reitman and I talked to can't remember his first name. His last name, I believe, was Gold. But anyway, and uh, various things were discussed. And um, Richard Edlund was already part of it. That's probably how I got in on it, because I'd hit it off with Richard during my stint at ILM on uh, Poltergeist. And uh, so Richard uh, and others were, you know, looking, sorting through the effects on the table, and they had this thing, a terror dog. And I said, Randy Cook. You know, and this time it happened. They got they hired Randy, and he worked there for many years. And of course, uh, in more recent years, he's finally, you know, broken through big time with the Lord of the Rings. Uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings trilogy, and he got like two Oscars in a British shot. So, uh, you know, I I, I kind of feel like uh, uh, I, I'm thrilled. Uh, you know, that a lot of the people that I started out with, we were all as unknown as uh, you know any other wave and uh, a lot of people that I saw at the very beginning of their careers have done very well you know very famous I mean I, I met a lot of people uh, in my own field who are quite well known today when they weren't particularly you know so it's been fun to uh, to see all of them succeed in their own, in their own way not all of them I mean so. I'm some jerks, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, a couple, yeah, a couple, but you know, but we won't say. I won't try to pull their names out. No, no. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, here's Elizabeth being menaced by all the uh, wind-up toys. Yeah, I still remember the art director, Mort Rabinowitz, nice guy. And the uh, DP uh, was, who was the DP? Andy Laszlo. Yeah, Laszlo, yeah, great. He's a really sweet guy. You know, I also think the score is very good. And this guy, John Beale, I don't know why he didn't do more, uh, more horror movies. I particularly like the main title music. I thought his use of uh, instruments that evoke the carnival were really, really good. Do you know if there were a lot of scenes, I, I've heard rumors that the MPAA made oh. Toby cut like a lot of stuff. And do, are you aware of any... Like makeup effects or gore effects that were cut from the film? No, I, I would. Uh, I'm not going to say that I can quash that, but uh, I didn't do anything that wasn't used. Well, there's one example. Uh, everything that I was personally involved in is in the picture. Is to the best of my knowledge, yeah, best of my recollection, I should say. So, uh, oh boy, there he goes. I can say one thing that that was also fun because you asked me what manner of you know what was the feel about the thing. Uh, one thing about it I actually liked it a lot is that the studio had a construction so that there were hallways and rooms leading off the hallways, almost kind of like a dormitory. And so there was a lot of hanging out, you know, while things were being set up or lit or whatever. And I, you know, was a lot of joking around. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I, I took a lot of silly Polaroids that I, I hope to make available so that, you know, if I can get, sync them up in time, we, hopefully we, we, you can have them on the DVD. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I felt it was, uh, you know, it was kind of like a, you know, a, a, almost said a sorority house. <laughs> that would be good. Uh, That's your next movie. Yeah, right. But yeah, we, we we I think we had a good time, and it would it would certainly speak to there being not too much tension if that were the case. And I mean, true too, uh, Marlene, the makeup lady. You know, she said, you know, I recently worked on a movie. She worked on some movie with Jerry Lewis, but she said she'd also done a film. She said that she thought would be very funny, and I said, what was it called? And she said, it's called uh, what is it? She says it's called Caddyshack. <laughs> Oh, I mean, shit. I mean, Caddyshack's like a little classic now. So, uh, you know, she had just finished it. <coughs> Do you remember what the uh, reaction was when the movie came out? Like to my to my impression, it flopped. I mean, I don't mean to be so emphatic about it, but I don't remember there being any terrific... Uh, you know, I don't remember get, uh, getting the impression that it was tremendously successful, a big hit, a big moneymaker, or that it ran for a very long time. I had a friend from high school, a lady as a matter of fact, not a girlfriend, but just a good pal, and she loved horror films, and she went and uh, saw it with me in Culver City, and uh, I don't believe the theater was extremely, you know, full, so I think that uh, it may be fair to say that uh, Funhouse is in that fraternity where... Uh, that's what I meant to say, a fraternity house. <laughs> but I think that Funhouse is in the fraternity of movies, which maybe had a little bit of a, a you know, an inauspicious beginning, but acquired, you know, uh, enthusiasts over the years. So no carnies protested 
the way they were portrayed in the film or anything like that. You know, I'd like to see them protest. I think that would have helped. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Also, I don't. I meant it in the sense that I've been to some carnivals that are just as smarmy as this one. All the only thing they don't have is a homicidal maniac. But here's our, uh, you know, our budget. Uh, you know, the motor works of the whole fun house. And uh, Toby liked to do uh, the bit that you just see here. Basically, he he liked to compose a shot so something happens over here, and then the real the real sock comes from the other side of the frame. And uh, so let's see if we see a classic example of this. We probably have something that's, yep. there we go. So the steam was supposed to distract us and then good old Wayne drops right in there. This was also, uh, I may as well say, there was a ridiculous fashion, probably uh, deriving from the immense success, talk about a success now, of Alien when it came out. And Alien really set the tone for gooey, slimy, viscid, disgusting, you know, uh, visuals. And I, I do think that that had a, a big, big impact on subsequent uh, horror and fantasy films, as witness our drooly uh, monster here. And, it, uh, you know, too much was never enough. You you put this stuff on, and it was this wasn't the only movie where I had this, and but in this case, Toby would say uh, more, a little more, more, you know. And before you knew it, you had two cups of slobber coming out of him. But then again, we did see the cow earlier on, and I think maybe the cow had some issues with that too. <laughs> if your face is half not closed up, it's not uh, inconceivable you're going to have some uh, drool problems. He wanted to make sure the monster was really, really dead. Yeah. Shock him and then grind him up. That's right. So now he's on a meat hook, but uh, we're being set up for another one of those. He's dead. No, he's not. I think even by the time this was made, that that was a pretty hoary cliche. You know, the idea that, ah, oh, thank God he's dead. And, and then, of course, grabs her. But what the heck, you know, part of what we love about our movies is they're cliches, too. Gonna get you. I would like to say something, even though it doesn't, uh, you know, fit our uh, continuity here at all, but I want to say something about the lady that made the wig. A lovely lady I first met at Universal in 1977. No, you know what? I met her earlier. She made a lot of the wigs for Planet of the Apes, and John Chambers was kind enough to invite me to Fox Studios based on a fan letter, which was provoked by seeing a, uh, a feature on the movie in Life magazine, well before it came out. And I wrote him a fan letter, care of Fox Studios, and uh, he invited me to come to Fox Studios. I was only 14 years old, and I got to, and I got to meet Josephine Turner. And Josephine had been in wig making since like the 19... Oh, I think the 20s and she was just an ace and when I got a job at Universal in 1977 she was on staff there and uh, just a lovely lady later in later years she worked out of her home and so I, she was the person I went to on a, on a few a few projects and she made the uh, wig for the uh, funhouse creature you merely had to provide her with if it was an unusual shaped head which this sure as hell is uh, you would give her a replica of it and then she would make the uh, the wig base so that it would fit it perfectly. And it was always a pleasure to deal with Josephine.
I sure remember that lady. Well, I remember the entire carnival because, uh, you know, the very night, the first night I arrived, I didn't have anything to do except, you know, meet people, and I walked around, and uh, that was the night scene, and uh, met met the cast, and uh, the, you know, who were all about my age, I would surmise at the time, twenties, you know, and uh, gee whiz, it's kind of you know. It's, it's, it's hard to remember uh, the 20s when you're not in the 20s anymore, <laughs> but uh, we were all in our 20s. And, uh, you know, it is peculiarly desolate to see a, uh, you know, a carnival in daytime when there's, uh, you know, nobody there versus all the, the lights and everything at night. So this is a good kind of uh, a death rattle at the end. But yeah, this was uh, this was specially uh, erected on a vacant lot that was not at all far from uh, everything else, from Ivantor Studio, and from uh, the hotel where I stayed. So it was a very efficient little setup there, and uh, you know there was no time spent having to get driven here and driven there. Man, we we all could walk to work. And so how many movies have you worked on with Toby Hooper? With Toby, uh, well, though I had very little, it's, uh, virtually nothing to do with it personally, I worked on the uh, Eaten Alive, I think is its most common name, with Neville Brand, which was certainly an eye-opener. It was the first, one of the first movies I ever worked on. And uh, Marilyn Burns was in that, the lady that he'd had in Chainsaw. And Robert England. And, and Bob England, one of, I think, his first movie. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and then I worked on this one. And then he uh, he called me to do Poltergeist. And I don't know if he would not have, I don't remember, I mean, Rick Baker had become a very much go-to guy at that time. I think there had been some friction with, with oh, of course, it was the problem with, uh, with uh, it's, an, it's another whole story, but there had been a problem with uh, Night Skies. Uh, not a technical problem. Rick didn't do anything wrong, but there was a huge change of plans, a huge script turnover, a huge conception change. Well, that's when they changed it from aliens to aliens to what? Yeah, not only and there we are, Rick and uh, Craig, and uh, yeah, it, it became uh, a completely different. And Rick, you know, argued this is going to make some, you know, this going to make an impact. And uh, anyway, I don't want to get into it because it's Marlena May, if whatever I called her, oh, that that's our lady. lady. Yeah, the makeup lady, and. Um, and so, uh, without a reason, Rick wasn't approached, nor was anyone else. I was approached, and I went in, and I was introduced to Steven Spielberg, and you know, pretty much on uh, Toby's conviction that I could do it, I was hired. It was incredible, a great, great thrill, and a great uh, opportunity for me. And uh, I, subsequent to that, I talked with Toby about Invaders from Mars, but that ultimately went to uh, the remake of that, and it went to Stan Winston, who was uh, also, you know. Quite the, uh, you know, quite the juggernaut in his lifetime. So, Craig, I definitely I want to thank you. For, oh, sure, for sure. Being here and, and, and you were you were very gracious, uh, Jeff.